Hey everyone, I am Dr. Aaron Wheeler. And I'm Dr. Matt Cook. And this is Missio Pop, a podcast on popular missiology where two overeducated white dudes talk about all things in the culture of missions and God's hope for the world. This first season, we're focusing on the task of contextualization, the way in which culture shapes and forms the way we share God's truth. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Missio Pop. Uh, Matt Cook, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. Super excited about this episode. Yes, this is an exciting one. Uh, we are going off uh, trajectory a little bit here. Uh, Matt and I are not going to be, you know, diving deep into some concept or idea within the world of contextualization. Instead, we brought somebody much smarter, more experienced, better looking than us to uh, have a voice in this place. So let me set this up a little bit. Um, I can like see the listeners, like it's qu- tripling, quadrupling as you say yeah. this. Yeah. We're not talking and we have somebody else coming in. Yeah, this is our moment, Matt. This is a, this is a big this deal. Is it. Uh, I can see they're up to 15 now. Right, right. <laughs> We've got more than my parents. We've even got some cousins brought in. So this is a real big deal. Um, when Matt and I were were sketching through this season on contextualization, we knew we needed to bring in some other voices. And literally the first person we both were like, we have to talk to this guy, uh, is one of my professors from my days doing an MA in intercultural studies at Wheaton College, uh, Dr. Scott Moreau. He um, has been an educator at Wheaton College for over 30 years. He is currently serving as the Dean of the Graduate School. Uh, in his time as a thinker and leader in the world of missiology, he has authored or edited more than 20 books, more than 300 articles, and is just an overall great guy. So Dr. Scott Moreau, welcome. We're glad to have you. So glad to be here with you. And I'm glad earlier you mentioned how good looking I am, because I think that's the most important thing. It, it clearly is. It's it's what it's what let's be honest. It's what draws the students in. We know how that we're all academics. We know how this game is played. Yeah, that's right. The three of us have faces that are fit for podcasts. So yep. this yep. is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why that's why we have no video format. You won't find us on YouTube. We don't play that game. We, we know how this goes. We, we accept reality for what it is. <laughs> So, um, Scott, let's, uh, I, you know, Matt and I both know who you are. I I had the joy and privilege of having you in class. I guess this is the time to bring this part up, which is that, uh, you know, going back to the early 2010s when I was enrolled uh, at Whedon in the MA program, um, my origin story with you is that um, the organization that I worked for uh, had a free master's program. If you joined into our long-term service, you could do a master's program completely free. And so it was one of those situations where you'd be an idiot to pass this up. And they gave us three choices. We could do uh, educational leadership, we could do TESOL, or we could do intercultural studies. I only sort of knew what that word meant. And uh, it was the closest thing to theology, which is what I really wanted to study. And so I walked into that program uh, not really caring much about the greater world of missiology, not really knowing what these things are. Uh, but I ran into to you and to your courses in contextualization and intercultural communication. Uh, I got the privilege of Dr. Rob Gallagher as well. And how I frame it up is those period, that period of time, those three years, I had you in my head, I had Rob in my heart, and I lived in this world of Asia trying to figure out how to do life and ministry and my entire trajectory was changed. And so um, That's cool. I just want you to know the impact you've had on me and both in your teachings and in your writings, which I have referenced many, many times in my world since then. Uh, thank you for what you do and thank you for being here with us. Well, praise God. Um, so as shocking as it may be to me and to others, there may be people who don't actually know who you are. So give us a brief introduction uh, for both of our listeners about your uh, career in missions and in academia. It's not shocking to me at all that a lot of people don't know me. Uh, Quite frankly, I I think I enjoy that in any event. My career in missions, uh, when I graduated uh, in 1977, yes, that's a long time ago, I first went over to Swaziland, which is now called Eswatini, which is a tiny little country about the size of New Jersey, located in between South Africa and Mozambique. And I spent Two years there, my my undergraduate degree was in physics, so I taught physics 
to high school students in Swaziland uh, and then heard about this seminary that was being started in Kenya. And all my yes bells started ringing at the same time. And so I chose then after two and a half years in Eswatini to head back to the United States to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I did my MDiv. And I went there not knowing that there was a curriculum around a field called missiology. I had not heard of it before. So like you coming into my classes, it's, this is what does intercultural studies mean? And the word intercultural studies and missiology can be used interchangeably depending on where you are in the world and which term is more appropriate. Right. But missiology is the study of missions. And every time I looked at the electives that were offering that semester because of my the bruising I had received after two and a half years of living in another culture. Hmm. It was the it was the the courses about crossing cultures that really piqued my interest more than the courses in theology. So Aaron, I went in uh less interested in theology, but knowing I needed to go on for some form of a doctorate if I was going to teach in a seminary back in Africa. Um and you might almost say I accidentally went into the field of missiology, hmm. but that was just because those courses looked the most interesting. I wasn't splitting hairs over theological issues. I wasn't worried about memorizing terms like uh, I, superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. I, I didn't have to worry about some of those, I had my own set of big words that I eventually came into, and contextualization is one of those. But that gave me a framing then when I went back to Kenya, this time to teach in a seminary where we taught master's students. All of this was while I was on staff with Crew. So I spent mm. 14 years with Crew. And then my wife, Emily, and I realized it was time we sensed God calling us to come back to the U.S. And uh, just by a series of sheer coincidences, I wound up at Wheaton on a one-year temporary teaching position that spun into 32 years. And mm -hmm. and now I'm, I'm retiring. Uh, by the time you hear this podcast, I will be very close to retiring. As we recorded, I'm 57 days away from it. And, and if you're wondering whether I'm counting, that does answer the question for you right away. <laughs> So coming to Wheaton, my focus has been on uh, graduate school the whole time and on thinking, writing, teaching. I love all three of those things. Uh, meetings I, I could happily <laughs> live without the rest of my life. And, as I'm and grading to, too. Throw the grading the window too, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, grading, you know, I, I eventually discovered that uh, when the papers are stapled together, if I st stop up on the fifth floor and drop them from the stairwell in the fifth floor, the papers that that go the farthest tend to be get the get best grades. So, you know, I, I told <laughs> students occasionally tip. staple all four corners of your paper and it's more likely to fall further. But, uh, you know, a lot of teachers are like me. We love to teach. We're, we're amazed we get paid to teach, yeah. uh, but you cannot pay us enough to grade. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's just the reality. So yeah, it's the, and, it's the poison in the, in the soup. It, it just is what it is. Yeah. I usually grade uh, with a, 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 a vast supply of chocolate nearby, mm. which, which helps me get through the grading. I, you know, I'll grade a paper and I'll reward myself. I won't tell you how big the chocolate bar is, but I will reward myself. So anyway, that's, and, and, being here, um, this word contextualization was a reasonably new word among uh, people like me in the field of missiology. As a matter of fact, it was it was coined in 1972. Hmm. So it wasn't I mean, the word itself is is just had its 50th birthday. So it's it's relatively speaking a new word. But it frames the idea well. You hear it outside of our discipline as well, too. But putting things in their context is the is the basic idea. And so when I think of contextualization, what should a church look like in Kenya? 
What should a church look like in Swaziland? What should a church look like, uh, Aaron, in East Asia? What should a church look like everywhere in the world? And and the reciprocal question eventually is, what should a church look like in the United States? Yeah. So yeah. you know that that's been my thinking all along. And having a scientific background, I tended to drift more towards the social sciences than theology. But I there's such a massive theological justification for being contextual about our faith yeah. that that never really was a question for me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's something Matt and I've talked about multiple times is that contextualization is incarnation. It's the model of Christ. Right. Um, he was the ultimate example and portrayer of contextualization. And so if we're not bringing in that theological backing for it, we're, we're deeply missing the point. Um, so I have a question. Is that, yeah. you know, I'll spill the beans here. We gave you some questions ahead of time so you could think through these things. I've been on the other side of interviews and I know how terrible it is when people just drop stuff in your lap. But what you had said historically that brings up a question in my mind is, you know, Matt and I have talked about, you know, we go back to the, you know, 18th, 19th century of some of the history of missions that it was clear that in that era, contextualization wasn't happening much at all. It was just kind of a copy and paste of how we do church to how we're going to do church here. Where you know, and then it becomes a term in the 1970s. Uh, so clearly it was happening before we created a word around it. Um, where do right. you think that shifted? Where do you think that began to happen? What caused people to say, you know what, we can't just copy and paste. We can't just take what we have and put it here. I would say in terms of the modern understanding of the term, some parts of the church came to that realization far sooner than other parts of the mm -hmm. church did. And, and by and large, if I were to, to say there's a principle, is the more conservative people were theologically, the less likely they were willing to contextualize. Hmm. Because it tended to threaten them to think, wait a second, my theology might need to adjust itself in some way yeah. just because I'm in a new place. And, and, and that's not that's a false way of looking at it. But even in the 1800s, we had this term indigenization that was mm. used, and it talked about churches that are that can financially support themselves, churches that have internal leadership rather than external leadership, say, of the missionaries, right. and churches that were communicating the message of the Christ of Christ themselves without having to have the missionary do it for them. Now, this is also the days of colonialism. And, and that writ large is a lot of what happened around the world. But I would say this, the, the missions movement of the 18 and early 1900s was successful in ways they didn't anticipate. Uh, one thing that happened is when people got a translation of the Bible in their own language and they were able to read it, they started to see incongruities with what the missionary was teaching them and mm. what they read in the text mm. um, and a longer a group had its own bible the more likely you were to get churches that were being formed apart from the mission world yeah and and despite the rightful criticisms of the colonial era the global church that we see today is a result of colonial mission efforts right and we can't we can't ignore that. Uh, and, and there have been problems, challenges, consequences. But at the same time, I can't imagine a more exciting era to live because we're seeing a global church that is not just global, but it's mobile. It's energized. It cares. It's passionate. It doesn't consider itself persecuted if somebody tells a joke about it it you know it, it it's it's not running and hiding in a corner neither is it turning towards dare i say it a form of christian nationalism that demands that their own country be declared as christian come hell or high water and apologies for for that language yeah. but there are elements i see that that are wonderfully and sometimes frustratingly exciting to me yeah, I, I'm glad That's... you brought that up because there's there's so much I find, at least in the American evangelical world, you know, in a similar path like you, spending time in a different country in a different place than coming back and trying to fit back in. Um, 
there's a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of question, you know, is this the darkest day of American Christianity? Um, you know, you look at no. the statistics, you look at the projections of those things, uh, you know, what Pew Research says is going to happen next. And it's like, for whatever that is and wherever that's going to go, guys, get your head above what's just in front of us and adjust what's happening in this country. What God is doing around the world is, is, is crazy. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. If we can keep our yeah, eyes there, it'll keep us from that discouragement. I think it's significant that you mentioned the colonial area, the colonial era. The very fact that they were doing translation means they were doing contextualization. Exactly. Right? We knock the colonial era, but man, they were they were busting tail in ways that we can't imagine to learn these languages and then to translate, which was contextualization. So yeah. I think that's a yeah. great point that where we're at today is a result of the hard, hard work, though far from perfect uh, that was done then. I think my biggest takeaway so far is that um, it's very comforting for me to know that someone of at your level still rewards themselves with chocolate when they grade <laughs> papers. Um, <laughs> I literally two hours ago went and got myself a diet cherry Coke to reward myself for grading papers. So I just, I feel great about myself that I'm not the only one who rewards myself. <laughs> um, you've hinted at this, especially referring back to the colonial era, but what are some great examples of contextualization that you've been able to witness? What are your, your favorite things that you've seen as missionaries have contextualized? Uh, what's your favorite examples of it? You don't have to bring up the project that my group created 15 <laughs> years ago. That we can just take that off the table right now. But I d did you do a project? I'm trying to remember right yeah, now. Yeah, we we <laughs> we did a project. Cat uh, Brant, Jonathan Wu. Um, we created a project because you required us to do it as, as kind of our last thing in the course, and that actually became my PhD dissertation. It was was taking that project wow. that we did a few different versions of later. And then going and doing quantitative or qualitative research in country with people who had come to faith through it. So yeah, that's that's the project we created that, for your course was the dissertation that you know I did 300 plus pages of qualitative research on. Uh, that became my life for the next decade. Yes, yes. Uh, I've, I've often said a dissertation is the closest a male can come to having a baby. Yeah. Uh, there's there's not physical pain with it but there is certainly emotional pain and anguish oh yeah so uh that one's not I what we're talking about though great no, examples no, of when, I, when I think of examples of contextualization it's funny when you ask that because everything i see is contextualization it doesn't feel that way to me when i go to my church because that's the water I've, I have swum in, have swam, have swum, am swimming, whatever the right way the word goes. I, it, it, that's the water I inhabited uh, a good part of my adult Christian life. And so when I go to my church, I don't think about being in an air-conditioned environment in summer and a heated environment. Where I don't think about sitting in nice padded chairs i don't think about having uh a an order of service that follows certain steps you know i always know we'll we'll open with prayer we'll we'll have three songs because it's a good trinitarian number uh we will you know we'll have a welcome we'll have announcements we'll have uh, some type of opportunity for giving we'll have a pastoral prayer we'll have a sermon uh, we'll have a closing song. We'll have a benediction. All that stuff is the stuff of contextualization, and that's not a pattern found in the New Testament. You know, it 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 just isn't. And so, uh, it's hard for me to say what my favorite example is. If you ask me what the strangest example is, then I can begin to talk about that. It's it's some African Christians marching up and down a street praising God, but dressed in, most of them in white robes, and some of them are in robes that are a different color. And when I asked a friend, what's the color mean? He said, oh, the color shows what angel appeared to them in a dream and promised to protect them. Now, you might say, that's not contextualization, that's heresy. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot of nuancing that needs to be done to look at examples like that but it's the type of thing that i look at and it just throws me for a big loop so it's strange to me 
And I fear my tendency is to say, because it's strange, it must be wrong. Rather than saying, okay, in light of scripture, now I'm not going to justify people wearing a a colored robe that shows which angels spoke to them. But when I look in the book of Acts, we see appearances of angels. You know, we see, we see dreams, we see visions. And, and Aaron, as I said in class many times, the, the, my Wheaton college conservative evangelical world doesn't have space for things like that which are thoroughly biblical and i may not me personally people may have written them out because of theological paradigms god doesn't reveal himself anymore which i think puts god in a type of lockbox that he doesn't appreciate and he's not going to stay in but that also doesn't mean we're opening up the bible for a new revelation you know revelation that takes place now is different qualitatively from that which took place through the apostles of the new testament Uh, and i know we're going so far afield right now we can go a thousand directions with this but that we're speaking in english is contextualization so uh you know and, and i've only named one example so far but there are plenty of others that i i could easily name a a group i'm working with who who is was a birthed out of kind of a theological marriage of navigators and the Southern Presbyterian Church, but it was the marriage took place in Korea. So this is a Korean mission group um, of roughly 1,800 missionaries serving in 100 countries. They're one of the largest Korean mission sending agencies. The vast bulk of them are tent makers, and they are convinced that is how we should raise our support. Mm rather than asking people to support us or relying on faith mission support. And and I, I've loved working with them over the last 25 years because it's like they're holding a mirror up to me and they are making uniquely and wonderfully Korean mistakes, mm. which illuminate my American mistakes to me you know, in, in ways that... They choose, you know, if you want to be a leader in that group, you have to act Korean, even if you're not a Korean. Yeah. Well, how about the American groups I worked with? You have right. to act American before you be chosen as a leader, even if you're not American. So that that's the type of thing I'm talking about. That is fascinating. That is fascinating stuff. I mean, I've wondered always in the back of my head one day, like, um, you know, I have taken contextualization to a certain place and, you know, see examples of it, but like to see other cultures contextualizing for other cultures, like what you're talking about, that's the next level that I haven't been able to dive into. And and I wish I could. So that's fascinating. Uh, I hadn't thought about the fact that their mistakes illuminate ours. Um, Uh, And and contextualization is not a white man's burden. If I I can Mm -hmm. use that terminology. Absolutely. Um, And, and these days, uh, with the gospel going from everywhere to everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, it's an unimaginably fertile field for seeing contextualization in process. Look at the immigrant churches here in the United States, the diaspora churches, uh, and, and how often do they feel strange to white suburban evangelicals like me, right. only because I don't understand what they're doing or how they're going about doing it, especially if they're not speaking English. But right. Right. Yeah. I've had a couple of instances when I was living in Southern California to be a part of Korean churches and Chinese churches. Uh, And yeah, yeah, Yeah. we're, we're in a different world there. We're looking at a different thing. It's, it's fascinating stuff. It absolutely is. And like I said, it made me think about leadership, how we, we tend to unconsciously find leaders who can act like us Mm -hmm even when they're not like us on the inside. Yeah. And we think this is what a leader is. And the tendency is we reproduce ourselves through those we choose to become leaders Mm. in our own organizations. Mm. That's hard. That's Mm. just hard. Man. We could go on that all day. Um, What are some examples of where you've seen, and you know, you don't have to name specific groups or people, but um, where contextualization has gone wrong, where people have, you know, maybe had a good heart, a good intention behind this, and it just doesn't happen. 
Well, I'll tell you, probably the, the most vigorous area of debate among missiologists, missiologists right now is in the Muslim world. Hmm. And it's over something called insider movements, okay. where uh, people are in the name of contextualization. And, and that's not a judgmental phrase that I'm using. That's just that's just it's a. Uh, what 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 we call a phenomenological phrase it, it's right. what they're they're doing and and they're trying to find ways to allow muslims to stay in their social settings while being lovers of christ now um and and there are huge battlegrounds being raised over this because some fear and I think in some senses, rightly so, if if they look Muslim, they think Muslim, they talk Muslim, but they love Jesus, what? what? How can we even have that? And others are saying, no, this is, this is one of the, dare I use a term from missiology in the 1950s, this is a, a bridge of God that enables people to cross over into the world. But wait, they're going to Moss. Right. But wait, they're you know they're they're taking their shoes off. They're they're washing their hands. They're they're bowing maybe towards Jerusalem instead of towards mm. Mecca, but they're doing things that look and feel very Muslim. So this is when I say as an example of something going wrong, I'm I'm highlighting the battlegrounds rather than delivering a final judgment on yeah. that. But one of my concerns is to the extent that Muslims that follow the insider movement approach to the extent that they never connect with the larger body of Christ, they are depriving themselves in significant ways of 2000 years of history, 2000 years of challenges, 2000 years of reflection. Um, and, and I'm not in favor of any community abandoning uh, the larger history with all of its problems of the church yeah i, I mean it makes me think of um <clears throat> our own like american version of that i was talking with a friend just at lunch yesterday a guy who uh recently started a new career and so he's working with a new group of people and he said he was shocked at how many young american families that he works with where he interacts with people that are that are Christian people. They love Jesus. They, they claim that he's the center of their life. They're involved in spiritual rhythms and disciplines, and they are not connected to any church at any level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, are we talking about the same thing here? Kind of, I mean, it's not, you know, we're not dealing with persecution right. and, and the, the right. area of that. Right. There's, but... there's not fear of death, <laughs> right. but there is a complete dissatisfaction with the, the way the local church has expressed itself to them and yeah. and they're not about to I, I see this in my own kids hmm. uh, at times so i understand that feeling of seeing it and saying okay how healthy is this if this is a halfway house that's one thing if, right. if this is what you're deciding is your permanent solution that's that's a completely different set of questions with different yeah. challenges yeah. yeah yeah that's a great example I think that whole dilemma, I like to throw that out to my undergrad students and it's, they're not ready for those sorts of dilemmas yet. <laughs> it's fun to throw that at them and let them wrestle with it and see where they go with it. And usually they err on the side of traditionalism instead of syncretism, but at least it's, it's helping them to think and wrestle with what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in culture, which is what this whole conversation is about. Exactly. So yeah. I hope that at some point, I hope there's some future missionaries uh, listening to this podcast. Yeah. So what general advice would you give to a missionary um, who is either in the process of crossing cultures, they're doing it right now and wants to contextualize, or somebody who's planning in the future? So just what's your general advice to them? If there's a rule of thumb, I would say I, I want people to understand it's that the gospel is not naked. It comes in flesh in language. It comes in flesh in rituals. It comes in flesh in stories we tell each other. It comes in flesh in doctrines. And as you're hearing, Aaron, I know you're recognizing the seven dimensions I right. talk about of contextualization. Right. And 
I want us to think more holistically than we've been able to think. So number one, the gospel is not naked. It's it's always enfleshed. Number two, I would say uh, the enfleshing of the gospel is a culturally valued thing. That doesn't mean the gospel is cultural, but but how I communicate it to you and you communicate it to me is enfleshed in culture. And so if I ignore that, I'm ignoring the reality that the equipment I received in my training, wherever that may have been, and now I go to a new location, my training, to the extent it has not prepared me for that new set of cultural enfleshments, is needs to be almost jettisoned. I want to be careful saying that. Yeah. Uh, but it needs to be at least set aside. It can bring wonderful highlights into a new culture of things that might need to be addressed, but it can also bring impediments in which my goal becomes, I want to make people be like me. You know, and we can we can quote with Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ himself. Mm -hmm. But I but I imitate me as a white male American who just turned 68 years old, and you will be imitating Christ himself. I hope I'm not uh, so arrogant as to say that, but sometimes that's the hidden message, and I want to make those types of things conscious. And, and that's why I, I fear too often, even in our own mission agencies, people say, what should I study? Oh, study the Bible. Because the assumption is, if I really, really know the Bible and know doctrine and know theology, everything else just will fall into place. Right. I guarantee you it won't. And and the problem is, the more rigid you have become, and I believe in doctrinal statements here at Wheaton, I sign one every year. I have no problem with those types of vehicles. But even Wheaton revised its statement uh, back in the early 90s. We're, we're always thinking, what are the things that we need to do? And they're talking about revising the statement again in the next year or two. Mm -hmm. So it, it, and it's not that Wheaton's theology is changing in some respect, but Wheaton's theology is addressing questions that didn't exist in the early 1990s. Gender dysphoria, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the legalization of marijuana, for example, in, in the state that Wheaton is part of, those were questions that were not even on the table at that point in time because cultures change. So if I were to ask somebody, what are you thinking about or, you know, enfleshment of the gospel is what contextualization is all about because it's making conscious the things that we do unconsciously. Because we do that. Yeah. We we enflesh the gospel. We can't stop ourselves. I feel like I'm preaching now, and I'm sorry, but I, <laughs> but it's all your fault, Matt. You got me on a roll by asking an interesting question to an academic. So, you know, I apologize for that. But yeah, but I think I think you hit it on the head that so much of especially when we're talking about our own culture that we came from, that we feel comfortable in, um, that the way we do things, especially when it comes to church. The yep. way we do things is just the right way to do things. We don't realize that all of those things are a choice. We don't have to yes. do any of this this way. We don't have yes. to have any of these traditions. Like there's not there's not a rule that we get in scripture of this is how to set up your Sunday mornings, let alone even if they're supposed to be on Sunday mornings, that yep. everything is a choice. And we just assume this is the correct way to do it because it's the way it's been done. And we're not, we're no longer choosing, we're just doing. And that gets us to a dangerous place. And I think we don't recognize that. There's a way in which... We think contextualization is just for missionaries, it's just for crossing national borders, it's just for these defined categories of difference uh, that when we apply it to our own situation, we don't realize it's the same game. Uh, one of the things that I experienced, you know, in your courses, my first, you know, dipping my toes in the world of missiology and hearing these mission strategies, I wasn't a mission major in my undergrad, so this is my first step into this, and I remember feeling this level of frustration of like, um, this stuff isn't for missionaries. I grew up as I'm a preacher's kid. I'm a preacher's grandkid. I'm a preacher's nephew. Like this, this was my world was domestic church ministry. And I'm thinking this is stuff that ministers need to be trained on. This is stuff that, you yeah. know, you can yeah. never go five miles away from your hometown and you're going to deal with this stuff. 
um, that these are the, you know, missiology has all these jewels that we need to share with the rest of, 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 of ministry um, because yeah. this, it's all dealing with the same stuff. Well, that's, I mentioned that we used your contextualizing the faith in my graduate course contextualization. Um, I think one of the 12 students is planning on being a cross-cultural missionary, but it was so incredible for them to, to glean from, boy, glean, that's not a very contextualized word, is it? Um, to, <laughs> gain, okay. to gain from your, your book and just the whole world of contextualization and then take it immediately this week into their ministries right here in the United States because that's something they've missed out. They take the class because they have to have one missions class through their, you know, one or two missions classes through their course of studies. And right. what they think is, okay, I'm going to knock, check the box off, knock this class out. But man, you take a class on contextualization and all of a sudden you've got some serious tools that you can use right now in ministry in the United States. And the challenge for that, I feel like is, is more challenging than ever. You know, I think of, uh, I had a student in my grad program this semester that he just got promoted to lead pastor. And so he's the guy who has to stand up and preach every morning, every Sunday morning. And he knows that uh, in the pulpits or in the pews, he's got five different generations represented. Uh, You know, that's a new thing now that, you know, our healthcare system is whatever it is and people are getting older. You've got a more diverse audience than ever. And it's like, how do you preach Acts 10 to five different generations? That's a new level of challenge. Very carefully. (laughs) Today's sponsor is Ozark Christian College, one of my favorite places in the world. Not only did I have a transformational experience as a student there myself, but now I'm kind of in the business of trying to make that happen for others, serving on its faculty. And today I want to talk to you about the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry with a spiritual formation concentration. This degree is specifically for those who have a calling to learn how to lead people into healing and wholeness in Jesus. What this degree is all about is giving a deep dive into God's word and learning how to partner with the Holy Spirit to experience internal change that will lead to external change of the world. If this is something you're interested in, I highly encourage you to learn more and apply for free at occ.edu masters. How are things going? I mean, really going for your church post-COVID. At Kindred Exchange, we hope your congregation is thriving, that your people are connected to each other, your community is connected to your people, and all of these people are reaching the world with overflowing love and gospel impact. We have a hunch though, because we are also a part of churches, that perhaps things are a bit messier than this. Over the last decade, we experienced new critiques to evangelism and American Christianity in a plurality of ways. Then, a global pandemic cultivated a natural break for many to step away from the faith community they had always known. We want to be a part of what's next for you. With the Mission Audit Weekend at Kindred Exchange, you'll gather with leaders from area churches to ask the tough questions about what's past, what's next, and what's best for the gospel to be an encouragement, not only to your immediate neighbors, but to your neighbors across the globe. Through keynotes, facilitated workshops, and curated moments of networking and sharing, our team of mission experts will guide your church leadership through a two-day assessment of your outreach programs and strategies. It's no secret that people are hungry for good news. Let's make sure we're using relevant approaches to help that good news be received as hope and light in a heavy, fast-changing world. If your church would like to be a city host, let us know. Or you can sign up for our next event taking place in Nashville on August 25th and 26th at www.kindredexchange.org backslash audits. When I was in Africa, my last few years, I started thinking about how do you contextualize preaching um because most and and the rule of thumb i've always had is that the more pragmatic something it is the harder it is to contextualize sure because it's it's the atmosphere you breathe it's the water you're swimming in uh and i i realized okay how how did africans traditionally 
get across truth. Uh, before the Bible ever came, well, they told stories. And it's fascinating to see how many African stories the main character dies. Hmm. You don't see that in American fairy tales. The main character beats up the bad guy and lives happily ever after and yeah, you know, and dirty. getting married yeah. in the process. But but for them, life was so harsh that they had to have main characters who blew it and died as a result. So and and it was understanding kind of a having a better understanding of a worldview. And there's no such thing as a single African worldview, but I realized they would tell a story and have a central point. And then they would tell another story and another story, all focused on the central point. And it's almost like the shape of a daisy. Yeah. Um, and 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 the, the smaller ones maybe were the more important ones. And the larger petals were big and beautiful and they told great stories. But they might, it, you know, it all depends. I'm carrying the metaphor way too far here. But, you know, I think the biggest compliment I ever received was an African pastor coming up to me at the church where I was attending with my family. And he said, why is it that you preach like an African hmm. and I preach like an American? <laughs> well, he had been trained at an American seminary. So he was always three points, three Ps, ending yeah. with I-N-G for his sermon. And uh, I... I realized, okay, even where you get your education moderates things in yeah. unintended ways. Uh, yeah. 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 Preaching is a tough one. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that I remember the first time I came across the, 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 the Daisy method of preaching yeah. and that was fascinating. I've heard one recently. I don't know who, who brought this up or where this came from, but they've talked about in, you know, modern preaching styles, especially in the U S you know, you're dealing with attention spans and how uh, much, yes, you know, yes. over 25, 35 minutes, someone is paying attention to anything that you're saying and said, uh, the way that he's approached preaching now is a bit like a boxer in a boxing match. I'm going to throw not, I'm not going to have three points that sequentially logically step from one to the other. Instead, like a good boxer, I'm going to throw eight, 10, 12 punches at you and just pray one of them lands. And that's, <laughs> that's going to be, I my... thought you were going to say, no, I have a three minute sermon. I take a little break and then I have another three minute sermon. <laughs> through 10 rounds with you rather than 10 punches yeah but that's kind of what you're saying is like under the topic of you know whatever text or whatever topic we're working with right. i'm going to hit right. this thing eight to ten different ways and okay. just hope one okay. of them lands and one of them gets you because over this 30 minutes i can't assume any kind of attention um <laughs> yeah and it's just sure. kind of it's, it's almost like a shotgun you know buckshot style preaching Right. You're 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 helping me make some connections. Uh, Jay Moon called this a digitoral world. Mm. It's digital, but it's oral rather mm. than a, a pure literate word. Yeah. And he does a good job with that in a book called Cross-Cultural Discipleship, where he, he helps me understand where this generation is coming from. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm thinking when we do. Uh, web courses, and and I've been teaching online for years now. Aaron, you were here before Wheaton really right. got into that, and no, we had none of that. Yeah, yeah, but we're always told, no, keep your lecture videos seven minutes or less, because mm -hmm. you go longer than that, and and the fast forward button start. You know, when people track this, the, the, what the students are doing, they're going through the fast forward button, and I'm. So even if you've got two hours worth of lectures, it's going to be 20 tapes, not tapes, right. 20 videos, right. um, and people will take a break in between. But the way you said that made me think, okay, is, is that how we need to approach the sermon? Hmm. You do you know, three minutes. I did back in the fall. It was just a, I like a good intuitive or um, deductive. And I like a good inductive sermon that leads me to one one big idea. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, Andy Stanley, the whole deal. Right. But I had this little series where I needed to do like have three points. And I just couldn't bring myself to do three points in a poem. <laughs> so I thought, you know what, I'm going to break these up into three 10 minute deals. And let's sing a song or two between each between right. each thing. Man, you would have thought that I was the they loved it. Huh. And I remember when we came the next Sunday when the series was over and I had to preach a normal sermon, I, I got up and apologized. It's like, I'm sorry, guys. Like my <laughs> kids, my kids were like, dad, we love these 10 minute sermons. So maybe there's, 
I just did it because of the circumstances, but maybe there's something to this and contextualization. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, one of my soapboxes that I've been on is uh, in our chapels here on campus um, that we have the second sermon, which is when the worship leader after the sermon is over, gives their own mini three minute sermon uh, Mm -hmm. in which, you know, I've always said, guys, we just got a sermon. We don't need another one, but maybe actually this is what we should be doing. And maybe we should lean harder into that. Maybe I need to stop getting on my soapboxes, but uh this kind of brings us the into first time i but first time i preached in bulgaria uh with a translator and i i preached the sermon and i sat down next to a person who was a missionary there and and had been there 15 years and his bulgarian was very good and the pastor said something and he said oh the pastor just paid you a huge compliment i said what's that he said i have nothing more to say oh. and and it's always when you know when when pastors have a guest speaker and they don't like what the guest speaker says, then they will preach a sermon to fix right. what was just said. And I thought, whoa, I had no they idea. Can even, they can even preach the sermon in a prayer. They can right. pull that yeah, off. Yeah. That's when you really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, you, you, you think something as simple as breaking up the sermon into bite-sized chunks um, and, and, you know, with this next generation, that might not help the people of my age, mm-hmm. but you know what? It's still different enough. It will engage my interest if you broke it up into seven, eight minute chunks and, and had a song or a prayer or an activity that people were doing or turned your neighbor as exciting as that can be for introverts like me in church and, and talk about what the pastor just said, or sometimes just it's a, a one minute prayer, God, what are you, what are you saying to me through this point? Uh, but you're breaking it up and it becomes, it feels different. So, and, and that's, contextualization is not doing that. It's consciously doing that in light of your audience. Mm-hmm. So in, in an audience, uh, you know, if you're going to an old folks home, for example, and you try and do that, they won't get it in the same way as if you're preaching it that way at your church. And that's what contextualization asks. So I just want to um, bring up that. um, So the future of preaching may have just been discovered out of a church of Christ in Western Tennessee. Can we just, can we just acknowledge that that just (laughs) happened? That who knew that the cutting edge Mm, of the latest and greatest in the world of preaching came out of that source? Just, yeah, that's... but the key though is to to mirror what we did. It has to be an acapella song between right. each true. of the it's three. True, yeah. <laughs> or yeah, else, right. if you use instruments, then you you lose the moment. <laughs> right, right. Now that was as you were talking about that, Scott. That reminded me of uh, a church in your area called the Practice Church, uh, okay. that is deep into spiritual disciplines and rhythms as part of their um, ecclesiology, really. And I've heard a few of their. They just put their their services up as a podcast it's nothing fancy they just literally record it put it and i've noticed that their preacher will do that he'll have these long times of silence of kind of some rhythms of examine um in the midst of the sermon as a way to kind of say you know we just talked about this we just learned this we just thought we just thought about this let's give us some space like let's stop and let me ask some good questions and just let you engage with the holy spirit and see what happens uh and as i've just you know listened to these in podcast form it's really been impressive of the way Things are different when you just are willing to add new elements. And so what we're saying here is contextualization is not just over there. Yeah. 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 It's 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 here, but it's harder for us to see it here. Uh, unless, for example, we've lived there or somewhere outside of our current here for a long enough time for this to feel a little bit strange to us. Yeah. Or, or maybe very strange to us, but it's it's the it's the stranger who can look at things and say, "Help me understand." Yeah. You know, and and when my kids would ask me questions, and kids are great at asking questions, and they got to the stage where when they were asking the why questions, I finally had to say, "Because that's just the way it is." <laughs> I knew I was hitting a contextualization bumping point, right. and occasionally I would say, "Because I'm the dad." Right. And you're not. <laughs> right. Or because uh, I. Because I said so. Yeah. Because I said so. Right. Yeah. But they're hitting at things that 
if I had known the answer to it, still wouldn't have satisfied them, but it simply told me, okay, this is not part of my conscious thinking about my own culture, my right. own ideals, my own values. Well, that kind of brings us to where we, I wanted this conversation to go, which is, you know, when you think of contextualization and the discipline of it, uh, what do you have to say to the larger American church? I mean, we are all in the, you know, evangelical world. Um, what role do you think contextualization has played? What, you know, in the twin demons of uh, traditionalism and syncretism, uh, where have you seen that uh, wreak havoc? Um, what do you, what would you say to us and to our own kind of people in this area? I'll start with a preface by saying, I wish I had a red light going off in my forehead every time something moved into syncretism. Mm. Uh, but that's where the body becomes very important, the body of Christ, to help us. What what does the history of the church say about this? Because uh, for the most part, we might have some new things. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll use this example, such as gender dysphoria that the first mm. century church didn't face in the way we do today. Uh, screen time is something that the first century church didn't face in the way we do. Uh, divided attention span is something they didn't face. So those are those are new, but it's I'm hard pressed to find any way that we can simply ignore that what we are putting together is a contextual thing. Um, and 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 that to our detriment in the what long do you, run. What would you say we're putting together? What does that mean? Church service. But in uh, what way? Building projects. Uh, oh, okay. Baptismal rituals. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not meaning to step on theological toes with that. Uh, a small group Bible study. You know, most of the theologizing in our churches today is not done by people reading books. It's by people listening to a sermon or a mm. podcast. Uh, and, and we call that oral theology, singing hymns, or singing Hillsong, or singing other contemporary Christian styles of music, whether it's a cappella or with instruments. Uh, those are all part of the rhythms that we follow that are enfleshed rhythms. And so, uh, Matt, going to your church, I might have a, a challenge, especially if I was supposed to lead and start us in the right key for an acapella <laughs> hymn or contemporary song or whatever it would happen to be. Uh, but I could understand it and feel it. It's when I lived in Swaziland and everybody on either side of me was speaking, was singing in a part. And I have enough trouble with a melody, let alone people who sing in harmony. I never met a Swazi who was tone deaf mm. and I'm tone impaired. I, I'm not completely tone deaf, uh, but that made it, that was a challenge for me. So um, what I would say to the American church today is you already are contextualizing, become conscious of it. And, mm -hmm. and that opens the door to asking questions. Uh, is this the best way to reach the audience I have in my church to minister to them, to uh, equip them for works of service, as Paul mentions in Ephesians, to offer help for their hurts, to, to offer exhortation uh, for their not doing things they should be doing. Is this the best way to do it? And I think if we're thinking contextually, then it opens the doors to finding new ways rather than unconsciously simply doing it the way we've always done. So Matt, you talked about, you know, changing the sermon. Uh, and there's a part of me that says, okay, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you apologize to your congregation after you finish the sermons, but why? <laughs> why didn't you just keep doing that the same and i'm not i'm not meaning to push you right now i'm just yeah i'm just saying if it's part of your conscious thought processes okay how can i bring this into the normal church yeah. life? yeah that's right that's a great point so aaron i know we're kind of running low on time i want to get to these we could do this all day long but i want to get yeah. to these fun questions here at the end um so you've written a lot um, i'm thankful that 
it's fun to interview and talk. I'm going to go brag about this later to my colleagues. <laughs> so like I got books on my bookshelf with the guy's name that I talked to earlier today. What did yeah. you do? Um, so my day was cooler than everybody else's. So of all the books that you've written um, or contributed to any, anything Edited. goes, yeah, which, one, that. which one's your favorite? I would say contextualizing the faith is my favorite because it is more than any other book. It is who I am. And, and it's, mm. it's what I believe needs to be done. Um, yeah, that that's my favorite. And it's not always that your newest book is your most favorite, but in this case, <laughs> it, it really is. So, well, yeah. let's run with that book then. Um, your most slowly, most widely known for these seven dimensions of contextualization which one of the seven do you think is most neglected and which one's your favorite to think through? Yeah, I would say the one that's probably most uh, neglected is the artistic. Mm -hmm. uh, and that ranges from the architecture of our churches. Uh, Aaron, you might remember, I have a collection of images of Christ painted by people yep. from around the world. And it's over yep. 6,000 images right now yep. uh, from first century, probably second or third century, actually through 21st century i love i've categorized them so they're all by kind of events in the life of jesus mm. and i love finding a, a a song by uh someone who who i resonate deeply with their singing their writing skills uh, michael card is one of those artists yep. and i love taking that song and putting images with it that i then use for a devotional but I think evangelicals, and, and there's a new field called ethnodoxology, and it, it's uh, how ethnicity plays in worship, and, and that hits that field. Now, I'm not comfortable uh, with body expressions of faith, like the African churches, dancing and, and so on. I, I am fully inhabited uh, in a way that makes me so inhibited i can't can't meaningfully let go uh, and and i don't think that's going to change in however many years weeks or months the lord gives me uh, to be on the planet but at the same point in time uh the the visual art i'm a strong visual learner and and the visual art is something that most excites me and i think is least represented in the evangelical world um, the one that I think is overdrawn is the theological dimension. Mm. And as I said earlier, it's because uh, people tend to think that if they get the theology right, everything else will follow. Yeah. And and so when you're looking at the word contextualization and you Google it or you, you get into a database and you look at it, the vast bulk of the literature is contextualizing theology in some way, shape or form. And, and too much of today's contemporary contextualization loses the anchor of scripture and, and looks at the modern trends or the modern sociological tools and wants to draw on those. I don't think it's wrong to draw on those, but it is if you lose your anchor, which is the biblical text. And, and so that's where I have a concern with that. But the other one that I would say that is is the the most challenging one to follow is the what I call the supernatural experience dimension, uh, and you know, and from yes, from tongues to healings to prophecy to dreams to visions. How do we contextualize that stuff? Mm. Well, frankly, we don't try and force it, but contextualization for me means dealing with it as it comes up in healthy ways that are based in scripture and that are rooted in community. So from exorcism, uh, which is not a biblical word, by the way, is the biblical word tends to be casting out. So from, from deliverance to casting out, to counseling someone about a dream or a vision, to helping someone who wants to speak in tongues but can't, or someone who does speak in tongues and wonders where they're coming from. You know, it, it's all this kind of stuff that's stuff that at a place like Wheaton, we're not sure how to deal with. You know, the, the last thing I wanted, and thankfully I'm leaving Wheaton in a couple of months now, was to be known as the demon guy. 
<laughs> at, at Wheaton. That, that's not good for academic reputation. That's not good for uh, collegial interaction. But yet I found over the years, if the counseling center has a student that has to deal with something, they, they tend to send them to me. Um, and, and they're highly qualified counselors. They're just a part of my job when I deal with students like this is to help them build a better toolkit. You know, uh, and, and it doesn't have to be a screwdriver to solve this problem. This this might require a hammer or this might require uh, a torch uh, or this might require, uh, you know, whatever it might happen to be. And and to help them normalize it, they're not weird. There's not something wrong with them. They've had an experience. They're trying to figure out what to deal with. And that for me is where I contextualize for them. Africans, I don't have to contextualize in the same way. I don't have to convince them that this is okay or this is wrong. I, I, I have to deal with it more forthrightly, shall I say. So even our counseling practices should be contextualized. But that gets into ritual, doesn't it? Oh, isn't that another dimension that we could talk about? So. Yeah, it's funny you bring up being the demon guy because I was gonna, I thought I was gonna have to break in earlier and say that you know, as much as I think of you as the contextualization guy, uh, that's the frame and the lens in which I've always viewed you through. Is that uh, you've done extensive work on uh, spiritual warfare and yeah. and that area as well. And I think there's probably a lot of people that that's how they think of you. They think of you as the spiritual warfare and like you said, the demon guy. Uh, so um, <laughs> hopefully the, not. Both yeah. of those are, are definitely part of your work and legacy. And for those who don't yeah. know, that's a helpful context. Um, besides your own book, what if you went to other authors? What if you went outside of, of things with your name on it? If you were going to recommend a contextualization resource, could be an article, uh, could be a movie. I mean, I don't know. I remember you showing like Japanese anime in one of our courses one time. Uh, so I know you you have right. a wide breadth on these things. What's the best contextualization resource you would recommend? Uh, uh, and thank you for giving me an easy escape because I, I, my brain kind of freezes at the question. <laughs> but uh, there's a movie called Jitensha, J-I- T-E-N-S-H-A. And it's actually done by a, a film crew out of Biola for their okay. uh, film majors. And it's the story of a Japanese man and his bicycle. Hmm. And, and what I love about the story is it's, it's very indirect in its communication, which is, it takes place in Japan. Uh, and, and so it's, it's very Japanese, but God steals pieces of this bicycle and and this guy said, you know, he writes a letter, dear thief, you know, just take the whole thing. And the next day a letter is taped on it. Uh, dear, the name of the main character. Uh, no, I'm not a I'm not a thief. I'm God. And, and it starts kind of this dialogue and God scatters these pieces and then gives the person a series of addresses to go mm. meet people because this is a person who's completely isolated himself from others and he needs people now it's more pre-evangelistic than evangelistic right but it's so strange for americans to see it and it has definite christian orientations but it's not quite the chronicles of narnia right you know, and, and 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 you don't have an Aslan character. Uh, a god is is amorphous and hidden. The bicycle is not God, and the bicycle is not a demon, and the bicycle is not a church building. It's just a stupid bike. But to find the pieces, he needs the help of other people in the neighborhood. So it's that type of thing that I love in contextualization. So Matt, it, it's maybe a twenty minute video. You should show that mm -hmm. as a sermon sometime in your church. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, it has a musical score behind it, so there will be <laughs> instruments, and I don't know how careful you need to be with. We're okay the rules with, on that, Matt. I, we're I, okay with background music and videos. We're okay. Are you okay? okay. I didn't know that. Okay. I have one of the great things I've enjoyed. Checking, is just making sure I didn't. I didn't want to put you on the chopping block by recommending that as a video, but that might be. A, a, it's a fun video for classes. Yeah. And and I right, no I doubt. use that in my intercultural communication class all the time. Mm -hmm. Is it, can we find that on YouTube or where? 
Uh, probably on YouTube. Yeah, J I T E N S H A Jitensha, um, and yeah, you'll you'll love it. Okay, no, that's cool. fantastic. Um, yeah, we it's getting about time for us to wrap this up. Um, Dr. Moreau, thank you uh, yeah, thoroughly. It's thank been you. it's been an it's honor fun. and privilege to have you here and to talk through these things. Uh, it made me miss you know our times together and 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 being able to be in this space more uh but we're glad you're here we uh you know we're two guys that have you know like you've been on these weird journeys of missions turns into academics turns into too many degrees and titles uh and mm -hmm. uh, we get to be involved with students in the next generation and um we hope that you know we can walk the road as long as you have and if we can if we can measure a fraction of the legacy that you have, we'll, we'll, we'll have done all right. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being by a part God's of grace, you're, Go ahead. By God's grace, you will, uh, your path will be longer. Well, that would be, that would be a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Been great. Matt, any Thanks last words there? Go ahead. Yeah, man, this has been great. My day has been better than any of my colleagues. It's good stuff. <laughs> I am so glad to give you bragging rights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't meet a Scott Moreau. I met the Scott Moreau. So <laughs> well, right. technically you met both because then, you know, on, right. on Amazon, it's a Scott Moreau. So, you know, it is. It what is, is a, I have never known. Matt was asking me earlier. Arthur. Arthur. Okay. Yeah, I, right. Sometimes I tease by saying another, but I don't. <laughs> and if you Google my name, you will probably hit first a Johnny Cash imitator okay. who was in Million Dollar <laughs> Quartet who happens to have Scott Moreau as his name as well, too. Uh, that's well, that's but, but I guarantee you that is not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that wraps up our time for today. We are getting uh, towards the end of the season. Uh, this has been a fun continuing conversation on uh, the world of contextualization in missiology. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you next time.